We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Perspective on SOT Radio Network. It is Saturday, February 13th, and returning to the studio today and co-hosting the show, we have Bilan Martin. Hi, everyone. Carolyn McCallum. How do you do? Shane LeChance. Hello, everybody. And I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley. We are going to be discussing a very big topic today. We touched on it last week and decided we could devote an entire show to it because it's that big and that important and we feel so strongly about it <laughs> and w- yeah we'll have some some um some strong words to say for and against certain aspects of this topic and the topic is objectivity so today on the topic of objectivity we'll be getting into you know what the word actually means what we mean by it because um it's kind of ironic, but the word objectivity has many subjective definitions and interpretations. Not and to mention being hijacked here and there. Approaches, exactly. And it's one of those things that um, I guess probably a lot of people don't think about very much, don't really consider. Um, if they do, they might do it, you know, just in a kind of unconscious way. It might just be part of their, you know, everyday outlook on the world. But there are problems with that, as we'll see. And there are other people who, like you just said, Carolyn, hijack the concept and um, in certain ways to say that they are the objective source of information. They are the be-all, end-all of information, which is another extreme. And uh, hopefully the goal is to find a definition, kind of straddle between the extremes and try to find something reasonable. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's what we're going to start, try out to do. Start out with... Um, like last week we were talking about inspiration and we started out with just kind of an etymology of the word, word where it came from and how that might affect how we look at the concept. Now, the word <clears throat> objectivity comes from late 14th century Latin, apparently, medieval Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a word objectum, and this meant a thing put before. Now, this was in reference to something put before the mind or the sight. So there was an object that was put before your perception. And so you would see it or understand it. Um, You'd perceive it. And this this comes from, again, from the Latin, um, older Latin, objectus, um, before or opposite, um, from obicere, to present, to oppose, to cast in the way of, and ob, against, to throw. So basically something is thrown in your path, thrown in your eyes, it assaults you with its objectivity. Or its presence. Or its presence, yeah. Uh, it also has the sense of a thing aimed at. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and that was also, um, all I could find on that is that it, it came around the same time, late 14th century, mm-hmm. so late 1300s. But um, I couldn't really reason out how that would come from the the word roots, a thing aimed at. Maybe 
the only thing I could think of was maybe um, like when you have an objective, something that you're aiming towards, that objective, I guess, could in a sense be something that you, that is thrown at you. Like you, you have the objective in front of you and you, I don't know, but uh, maybe I'm just force fitting that one. <laughs> I'm trying to move towards it. Well, something really interesting happened to the words. Um, if you're going to talk about objectivity and objective, you also may want to look at its opposite, what we consider now its opposite, which is to be subjective. And so on the, you know, Google of all things, I uh, found a very interesting question to a little in a discussion about objective and subjective. And uh, one guy's uh, objective and subjective, he was saying it means one thing in grammar and it means another thing in uh, in philosophical discussion. Mm-hmm. So I'll just try to summarize this. Uh, subjective does not mean brought under. It's neuter and means uh, to lay or lie, therefore what lies underneath or what is hidden. Subject, subject comes from Latin subject, sub, subjectum. In ancient philosophy, it was a translation of the Greek, not even going to try, what is under... <laughs> which was used by Aristotle to indicate both substance and the matter on which the form is impressed. This Aristotelian distinction in terminology had currency for many centuries down to Descartes. Then Latin was superseded as a universal language. It corresponds roughly to Kant's concept of noumenon, the thing in and of itself per se, the intrinsic substantial reality as opposed to the object which appears to the senses, its representation in the mind. But, and here's where things get really interesting, Kant reversed the terms and considered the thing in itself as the object, and now the subject is the human mind that categorizes the noumena. The subject perceives and describes the object. Kant's categories of understanding are descriptions of the sum of human reasoning that can be brought to bear in attempting to understand the world in which we exist, that is, to understand or attempt to understand things and himself in themselves. So our usage of these two terms was actually stemming from a particular philosopher's interpretation of these two words. Mm-hmm. And and I just find that kind of interesting that and I couldn't find a reason for why he decided to swap them around, but it it it's cutting them off from their original roots. Well, it sounds like that use uh or that usage applies more to our our grammar. Than, um, mm-hmm. than the current philosophical okay. uh, use. Okay. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because grammar can be used in, in uh, achieving, like, logic, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one aspect of that. Um, but I think part of the discussion that uh, we'd also like to get into would be, you know, our, our instinctive um, biases mm-hmm. that, that we have. Yeah. And, you know, we do have, uh, we are able to instinctively pick up on grammar as young children and have, you know, we have relatively little problem with with, with that. But um, when we instinctively try to pick up on things like statistics, Mm. it becomes, you know, we're we're way off. We're, 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 you know, we don't, we're not good instinctive Statisticians. What would you say the chances of you know being a good statistician are? Well, <laughs> just instinct instinctively. <laughs> I'd I'd say pretty small. <laughs> but even even statisticians are apparently bad instinctive oh, statisticians. At it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so the 
the current accepted, you know, general uh, idea of objective is to be not influenced by personal feelings, interpretations, or prejudice based on facts, unbiased, and objective opinion, or intent upon or dealing with things external to the mind rather than with thoughts or feelings as in a person or book. However, that is a difficult state to achieve. Yes, is such a thing even possible? Yes. Well, that's where that's where the like we are shaped our our understanding of the term and the concept is shaped by these centuries of philosophical debate to the point where we get the definitions that we have now and even just the kind of automatic definitions that we come up that we come to understand. I mean, because hearing the word as you grow up, you with like with most words, you just kind of assume a certain definition for it and it becomes something that you kind of subjectively stand as something when oftentimes when you look at a dictionary you say oh well that's what that word means you know i never really thought of it in those terms <clears throat> but like you're saying so in, in philosophy at least nowadays it's considered um you know objectivity is considered to be related to things like reality and truth mm -hmm. and so it's outside of your own biases and feelings as a subject the subject, you know, in opposition to the object. Mm -hmm. And um, so these things are true regardless and um, without reference to your own personal feelings, ideas, you know, and opinions. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Ayn Rand had her own, uh, like, philosophy of objectivism. Mm -hmm. And this kind of gets into, I think, um, maybe a reason, maybe not specifically why Kant switched the definitions, but um, why the trend has gone in that direction since Kant um, this this idea of this materialistic um, philosophy, because Rand thought that reality exists totally independent of subjects. So you have beings like us who are, you know, arguably conscious, sentient. You know, we perceive things and have some kind of, you know, inner awareness or consciousness. Mm -hmm. And reality exists totally independent of that. So if there were no subjects around, if there was no consciousness around, there would be these brute facts of reality, um, of things. And as subjects, as conscious beings, we only come to know the world through our sense perceptions. Now, this is a whole, you know, field of philosophy that, you know, we could get into if we want, but, mm -hmm. but it comes down to this materialistic view of, of the world and the, the split between consciousness and matter. And this had a profound influence on science. Because for science, um, you know, ever since the Enlightenment, we have steadily come towards the the position that the material world is all that exists, and there is no good explanation for consciousness. And in fact, probably consciousness doesn't really exist in any real sense. Mm -hmm. The only thing that really, really exists is physicality, is brute matter. And then we're just a bundle of chemical processes responding to these facts. Right. And so for science, there's this objectivism in science where the ideal is the ideal, ideal of objective truth of objectivity is akin to a scientific measurement. So this is something like if you've got a, a piece of wood and you're measuring how long it is, then that is verifiable. It's reproducible. It's public to anyone that wants to test it. So anyone can look at it and say, OK, yeah, I've verified your finding. That is that is an objective fact that that you know ruler is 12 inches 30 centimeters so one one aspect of objectivity keeping it in quotes for the moment is the fact that there is multiple agreement mm -hmm. on a particular 
fact. Yeah. Put that one in quotes too. <laughs> but specifically like in the in the hardcore science, this is an objective fact that is physical in nature. Mm-hmm. So the the controversy is that only physical facts are objective. And, and, only, and the only things worth considering. Right. So when you have a scientist's perception of that ruler, that is a subjective experience, and that isn't verifiable because I can't physically reproduce or verify that you are seeing that ruler the exact way I'm seeing it. That is a subjective thing, and it's not worthy of scientific um, you know, uh, analysis or investigation, which kind of, I mean, it... it it, when I read stuff like this, it just strikes me as totally ridiculous how um, you kind of, they, um, like philosophers and scientists, they kind of create these intellectual mazes and, uh, and they run in circles and come up against total absurdities. And this is, this is one of the big um, criticisms of scientism and materialistic philosophy is that it comes to absurd conclusions that don't have any base, well, don't really have any um, correspondence to the way we experience reality okay. because when it comes down to it we are subjects and we everything that we experience is uh, a subject experiencing something else mm-hmm. but maybe maybe you could look on objectivity not objectivism mm-hmm. just leave Anne Rand off to the side although she had a lovely quote about it oddly enough but you maybe you can look at it in terms of the way we use Newtonian physics versus quantum physics at a certain scale and a certain application, it has its uses. But when you try to extend it past that point, then you end up in those scientific mazes. I mean, look what quantum physics has done to that whole idea of the observer versus the, you know, the activity. I mean, that just hoops things terribly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does have, at a certain range, uh, an immense amount of usefulness. Well, and I think the key there, when you know, you spoke earlier that there is this you know, agreement uh, about these facts. They were, they were also employing you know a certain set of rules, the scientific method to you know to uh, work towards that agreement. Mm-hmm. So you know you could take something outside of a scientific experiment, and you know if uh, if there aren't those rules in place, there could be wide agreement on something, but. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know rooted in any kind of uh, objective reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think just the basic thing to take home from all these like philosophical debates and arguments is simply that like objectivity, like the the kernel of the uh, the idea of objectivity, is just relates to reality and truth. Mm-hmm. But first of all, there is such a thing as a truth. It is possible to say that uh you know some things are true and some things aren't and that this should be a goal that we that we aspire to mm-hmm. and that um that we hopefully will be able to achieve at least in some some greater degree than we have in the past and otherwise if that wasn't true then there would be no purpose to science there would be no purpose to investigative journalism mm-hmm. or you know any kind of inquiry into the the way the world works, what happens in the world, into history. If there is no such thing as truth, then pretty much every every intellectual pursuit, and even um, even among people who don't consider themselves intellectuals, you know, just watching the news and and thinking that something that they see is is true or false, that would just be meaningless. And then, then you get to the term called, which is a beautiful one, which is mapping to reality. Do the concepts in your head line up with what you? experience, mm-hmm. you know, and pe- people are, of course, wonderfully adept at 
continuing to hold on to a concept in their head that absolutely has no map to reality, but they can do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And they can decide that their experience confirms uh, their their subjective ideas Even of what's better. true <laughs> when, in fact, it isn't true mm-hmm. uh, or certain things may not be true. And uh, and that seems to be part of the um, the challenge or the issue that uh, that we come to when we try and present information that is more or less objective on SOD or, or anywhere else, uh, because quite often uh, we can't say that we're always going to be 100% factual or objective, um, but the, the goal certainly is to come as close as possible to uh, the goal of, of being factual as we can be. So uh, we're not doing or dealing with absolutes here, mm-hmm. um, but I think that what we can do is look at some of the criteria, uh, some of the uh, ways of critically thinking about um, how we're, you know, what we're determining is objective truth or information or mapping to reality as we can. Well, I, I came up with one little idea. It just popped into my head, and it seemed to be good um, in a, assessing people. Um, that the degree of objectivity possessed by an individual can be assessed from the effectiveness of their decisions and the actions stemming from them. So if if you are objective, you can assess a situation, make decisions, and have those decisions and the actions that they take be effective in dealing with the situation the decision was being made about. You will know them by their fruits. Okay. Now, the, Does that sound <clears throat> Well, it, it sounds it sounds plausible. I think when um, when it's applied in, in, in certain ways, or maybe possible, I should say, mm-hmm. um, because there are so many uh, innate tendencies that you know that are kind of ingrained in us that are automatic within us mm-hmm. uh, that that can prevent us from going through that you know just on our own. And you know, I think that that's where we really do need other people. Mm-hmm to uh give us that feedback. We're we're awful at, you know, understanding our own issues and our own selves. Mm-hmm. Uh we, you know, we we just can't see all of our own programs. So if you can incorporate other people's feedback um, you know, about the self, about yourself, then I think you can you can achieve a more rounded and more accurate view of of uh such things. And yeah, you know, and the same the same type uh, method can be used in in looking at um, things like world events. Mm-hmm. You know, we might have different biases that that or you know different belief systems that we grew up with that can uh, alter our perception about things, and you know it, it it'll block reality mm-hmm. uh, from uh, from emerging, and we won't see the actual picture of, of, of what's going on because of those things. And then what happens is you, you'll take an action, make a decision, and it will not work out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but that's the thing. Well, that that was my idea that if an objective, you, you can gauge the ability of a person to be objective by the effectiveness of the choices they make, you know. Mm-hmm. And how, how would one define effectiveness? as uh, being beneficial to the most people or... Or at least beneficial according to their goals, mm-hmm. you know, which ideally would be for more than themselves. But, you know, yeah, that could be a stock trader. stock trader may be wanting to only benefit himself, but if he can 
realistically assess the trend of a market, set aside his own biases, his own fears, his own hopes, and simply make decisions based on the information he's gathering, he will do well. Well, it, it, I think it, it, the picture can get muddy, too, when, when we're dealing with power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you have these um, huge corporations and, you know, PR firms and such, and they do create this mythical reality, mm-hmm. and they're very effective in it. Yep. Um, and, you know, so when you have, you know, these, these so-called reality makers um, just manufacturing stories and, you know, putting out lies, you know, they're very effective. So h- how do we measure, you know, the, uh, the objectivity of that? Well, there was a, a journalist in the uh, 1920s and 30s uh, named Walter Lippmann. Uh, he was a bit of a giant in his time. He um, he did a kind of a study or examination of the New York Times coverage of the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, he did this with another journalist named Charles Mertz. And um, they, uh, they, they came out with this study and uh, realized that so much of it was subjective and uh, unfactual. And they printed it, and um, it became a kind of a, a standard um, examination of, uh, of just how one of these, you know, bastions of news and truth is, you know, doesn't get it right, and maybe doesn't even try to. Um, so, you know, he was one of the kind of uh, one of the earlier voices for bringing in uh, a criteria for good journalism. And uh, he had some interesting things to say. Um, some interesting quotes were, you know, there can be no higher law in journalism than to tell the truth and shame the devil. Um, and he also said, where all news comes at second hand, where all the testimony is uncertain, men cease to respond to truths and respond simply to opinions. The environment in which they act is not the realities themselves but the pseudo-environment of reports, rumors, and guesses. Um, so he was trying to point this out to the, uh, the journalist community at large at the time, mm-hmm. and, um, and some of it's kind of trickled down over, over many decades, but, uh, but you know, there are groups like the American Press Institute that say that the meaning of objectivity in journalism has been completely lost on many. Well, yeah, if you just search on Wikipedia for objectivity, which I did, um, yeah, then uh, one of the entries that comes up is journalistic objectivity. This is one of the, the, the venues where this word is used. And so the ideal of journalistic objectivity is um, it's characterized by things like factuality, disinterestedness, fairness, nonpartisanship. Now, so I guess they're what we're coming to in this discussion is that there are kind of several levels of objectivity and several ways it applies to the world, several things it applies to. And one can be just the base, like facts, facts on the ground. So it sounds like what you were saying, Elon, is that these these guys in their story actually presented a picture of the world that was factually wrong. So hopefully when you're when you're reading a source or when you're writing something, you want to be factually correct. And so there are facts that you can get wrong, or you can just lie about them. 
And that's kind of the first level. Um, if we're looking for information, we want the information that, that we're reading to be factually true. And you don't even have to lie. You can just leave stuff out. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, but, you know, so in the first case, if – so to use some examples from the past couple of years – we have the Ukrainian media who, you know, probably over a hundred times had said that Russia had had invaded uh, Ukraine on various occasions, um, and this was just factually incorrect because that never happened. That's on the one hand, that's just a, a bald lie, or it could be, you know, in minor cases or in different cases, um, just getting the facts wrong. You know, for for whatever reason, you think this actually happened when it didn't. And but by repeating that, you're repeating the lie. And then, like you're saying, Carolyn, there are other examples of the facts that you leave out because a, a journalist or a person writing for, um, you know, like a wire service can present what looks to be a factual disinterested report. And, for, um, for example, um, you know, you can talk about um, this happens a lot in the Israel-Palestine conflict where a journalist will talk about um, you know, Palestinians fired rockets, you know, into the, you know, into the desert of, of Israel. And that might be factually true. You know, let's just, for the sake of argument, let's say that this actually happened and that, and that Palestinians really did fire rockets, because oftentimes they don't and Israel just makes it up. But if they really did, there's often other facts that are left out that uh, that would give a different picture to this story. And that might be that this r rocket was in retaliation to a an airstrike that killed an entire family, mm -hmm. you know, going to a wedding or something. And also the fact that these rockets were tiny, harmless, yeah. hitting in the open area, but they leave the reader by leaving the rest of that out, they leave the reader to picture some kind of, you know, scene of destruction and mayhem and mm -hmm. injury and you know. Yeah. The um <clears throat> yeah, agencies like uh Reuters and Associated Press, you know, they they're often seen as this objective news source in in the West. And another way that we often see, you know, a twisting of things uh, is through translation. Yeah, you know, I remember um, when um, Ahmadinejad. Yeah, Ahmadinejad when he when he said that you know Israel should be wiped from the pages of history, like that was mistranslated to be to say that. Israel should be wiped off the map, and you know, with the implication that uh, Iran should you know nuke them basically, mm -hmm. and yeah, you know, and, and that that led to a lot of the um, well, they had a field day with that. Yeah, all, all the issues with oh, Iran has, is trying to build a, a nuclear weapon, and you know they're 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 going to pose a threat to Israel, and that was a huge driving force at at that time, um, and just today. There is an article uh, from uh, Reuters where they misquoted uh, the Russian Prime Minister Medvedev, 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 <laughs> and uh, saying that. So he he recently had an interview with a, a German newspaper, and they quoted him as uh, saying that he was raising a specter of a, a new world war. Um, so their quote was. All sides must be compelled to sit at the negotiating table instead of unleashing a new world war. And they put it in the context where basically like that Russia was posing this threat of of a, a new world war. Unless they negotiate. Unless, yeah, unless, unless there was this negotiation. However, 
what his actual words were, what is necessary is to use strong measures, including those taken by Russia, by the Americans, and even under certain provisions, those that the Turks are trying to take, to sit at the negotiating table instead of unleashing yet another war on Earth. We all we all we know all too well that the uh, the scenario is leading to that. So you know he's just outlining the need for sitting down and, and negotiating things to to prevent a uh, a war a, a new world war from happening. Um, so so there's all these twists and you know it, it always struck me that um, the the objective the so-called objective nature of um, you know the, these um, media establishments that, that they try to take. And a lot of it is, you know, this very unemotional droid talk. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it leaves out, and and that's kind of how we think about objectivity, right? Is, mm-hmm. is without any kind of emotion. And you know, I think that that's seriously lacking um, because it's 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 an one. It's working off of an old definition. I mean, when we when we use the word objectivity in in everyday use, you know, we might be. Um, Say we're arguing with a, a Trump supporter. I wouldn't. I wouldn't advise it. Just just for a thought experiment. <laughs> say say we're arguing with a Trump supporter, and and you know they say something like, uh, you know, well the Muslims they're you know they're they're trying to take over America and impose Sharia law, and and um, and you might respond, well, try to be a little more objective about this. And you know the the idea behind that is well you know let, let's not have so much emotion clouding our our, our thinking, mm-hmm. and there is I think a um, an accuracy in in that idea that mm-hmm. emotions can cloud our thinking. However, there is also a new um, you know a, a lot of the new developments in cognitive science. It's not just our emotions that can drive our thinking that that mess up our thinking. But it's also some very fundamental uh, cognitive errors that we use in in our judgments about things. Mm-hmm. It's not just emotions, but it's also our, our basic cognitive function that that isn't working so well. Yeah, there was there was one thing. I jumped in a bit. Um, I found this wonderful little thing in uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Totally recommend the book. It's great. Take it in slow bites, but it's wonderful. And the idea that um, Brains are lazy. Thinking hard is energetically depleting. So there's, uh, he posits uh, this fictitious system one and system two. And system one is the one that kind of serves up an opinion ready to go for you, and you don't have to think that hard about it. Um, he calls his cognitive ease. Um, there's growing evidence that good mood, intuition, creativity, gullibility, an increased in reliance on system one form a cluster. And it kind of struck me as that, is that a lot of the news and other such things um, are, are either unconsciously or possibly deliberately shaped and put forth in a way that in, increases this reliance that it makes you feel good. Just hold on a sec, Carolyn. Um, can we ask, I'm just going to ask our chatters if you can hear Carolyn's voice on the broadcast. Is she coming through? Just let us know because we can't hear her. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. New mic. Hi, everybody. Actually, you're fine on that other mic, Carolyn. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Um, Just the idea that that the impression I get from from a a lot of especially American news is that it is shaped to, to enhance that effect, that the keywords they use, the way the ideas are presented are all about, you know, encouraging you to rely on that system one and go... Yeah, I agree with this. Um, patriotic American, da 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 da. Because the other end of it, the one that makes you think well, that makes you think with vigilance, is to be somewhat depressed, suspicious, um, and in- increasing the effort to think brings that on. People don't want to feel depressed. They don't want to feel vigilant. They don't want to feel suspicious. It's tiring. So it is. Uh, a happy mood loses the control of system two over performance. When in a good mood, people become more intuitive and more creative, but less vigilant and more prone to logical errors. And the whole, especially American media, seem to be set up to do that, to simply keep this this very feel-good, intuitive, you know, I've got this mood going, and to completely discourage analytical thought. Well, I, I, um, you know, it it's, gets back to what Littman was saying. Uh, he had another quote that uh, speaks to all of this. Um, there is this kind of appeal to emotion, as you're saying, Carolyn, and there's also a bit of a con involved in the style of journalism that uh, that we're so exposed to in Western media. Um, Littman says the impartial voice employed by many news organizations, that familiar, supposedly neutral style of news writing, is not a fundamental principle of And so, um, you know, you open up the New York Times or any one of these more established uh, organs of uh, disinformation in the West, and um, the style of it uh, kind of uh, sucks you in. It's got this kind of air of legitimacy that um, that is almost you know impenetrable. Sort you of gravitas, and we've thought deeply about this yes. and all of. Yeah. We are an authority. We it's are an the, authority. All the news that's fit to print. But the flip side of that is, you know, I'm thinking about all of the pieces that, uh, or at least some of them, that uh, that get carried on SOP that are a hundred times more objective. In their use of facts and uh, and connecting the dots, at least we think they are, mm-hmm. uh, than you know than this kind of New York Times comparison, and uh, and they might even include some emotion and some um, emphaticness and some uh, some uh, what could be interpreted as subjective um, feelings about the news that that's being covered. And so, um, you know, that might get dismissed in many people's minds as subjective. Mm -hmm. But it it seems that when editorial that is informed by the facts uh, includes some amount of emotion, um, it does have a a power and a validity and uh, and a strength. Uh, It's almost as as if it's, um, it's... it's delivering or inspiring uh, truth in the minds of people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but again, we have to be very careful about what we're looking at and, and we have to think about the criteria we're using 
whenever we read anything at all, uh, like anything else, um, even a lot of the information, the good information that we read is mixed with conclusions and uh, and um, ideas that may not be correct. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think this um, ties in pretty directly to authoritarian thinking within the media and the very structure of uh, especially mainstream media. You know, you, you spoke earlier of um, how you know these ideals of objective journalism, you know, don't exist. Um, you know, what objective journalism I think really means is following this authoritarian structure. There's these specific procedures that journalists are expected to take, mm-hmm. and you know, this involves following uh, official sources. You know, these are the reliable sources that, you know, are giving us the facts of what is and what isn't true. Now, we could rely on that if they weren't a bunch of liars. But, you know, when you look at the the just, the, you know, the past decade or so and more, um, you know, it, they, they've shown they've been shown to lie and lie and lie again, yet. Still, you know, the when you look at when we say like CNN, Fox, um, MSNBC, and so on, you know, their reliance is on one government sources, mm-hmm. and then corporate, you know, big corporate uh, sources, and these always have vested interests, and um, you know, they they're looking to retain their power, um, so you know, it just follows that. You know, the the so-called facts that they're giving out are are going to be warped to be able to maintain that power. Um, now, I, I was I was looking back at um, so one of the big one of the big stories that where you know mainstream journalism has been shown to you know just just to be shown how false they they were and how uh, little uh, of the true objective journal journalistic practices, um, you know, they, they didn't they didn't accomplish those things. Was was in the uh, Iraq War, and there was an interview with uh, John Stewart and Wolf Blitzer some years ago, and he had him on, and he was talking about, well, you know, uh, all the mainstream sources were were coming out and saying that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, and and he didn't. So you know what was what was up with that? Why were you guys all saying that? And Wolf Blitzer was just like, yeah, you know, we had this failure, and but we were all saying the same thing. And I looked at all the briefs, and I looked at all the sources. Now in his mind, we was you know it was just the the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any other media in his mind. You know, there is no other sources other than government sources. So, you know, he was getting all the briefings from the Pentagon and the White House and uh, Congress and the Senate. And, you know, they were all geared towards Saddam having, you know, weapons of mass destruction. So that's shaping the intelligence. Yeah. And, you know, it's just bizarre that, you know, you have these these powerful figures uh, in the media and they're only – um perception of a source is what the government tells them and that in its very nature is is that authoritarian follower type it's funny because that's what history used to be like 
I've been reading a couple books on uh, Josephus, who was a uh, an historian of Judea in the first century, and so he wrote an entire paraphrase of the of the Old Testament, and then all the events leading up to the the Jewish revolt, um, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And he's pretty much the only surviving source for the events in that time and place. So I'm reading these books about it, and the the, the author Steve Mason he brings up some important points. Um, that probably a lot of people, you know, haven't heard of before, and that is just the nature of history writing in the ancient world, and how there were no explicit um, instructions or guidelines or criteria on just how to verify facts. It wasn't even talked about. So there were no, there were no criteria for how to how to like verify a source or to cite a source or to justify why what you're saying was true or not. So you could just historians would pretty much just write anything. We have no idea, you, you know. Shut up, right? Well, yeah. And and I'm sure there was, you know, there's some truth and there's there's some truth in there. It's just almost uh oftentimes impossible to to tell if what they're writing is, you know, true or not. Um because they, you know, they just didn't do history the way um historians today at least ideal, you know, ideally would do history. What they did do um, but you know, by reading the ancient historians and seeing what criteria they did use, they would judge the truthfulness of, a, of an historian um, on the basis of their character. And so, to establish one's character, you had to do certain things, like uh, you had to prove your your good birth, you know, your your lineage, where you came from, your wealth, your achievements, and all this. So once you had all that, then you were an authority, and you could you know ostensibly be believed. Um, your your account was was good. And so historians would either would oftentimes reject certain other historians based on these moral grounds, or they would judge like the situations that they're talking about. Like, um, you know, one guy's assassinated by one of his two like associates. Now, of course, therefore it must be, it must have been this associate rather than the other one because of his um, lack of character. Right. So, that, so that's, that's an early, uh, so your credentials were established by what Kahneman calls the halo effect. You had to establish mm-hmm. your halo first, and then yeah. you could write. And then that halo that you created for yourself or that was created for you would often then color your narrative that you wrote. So he's using Josephus in, as an example. Mm-hmm. Josephus wrote one of the earliest surviving autobiographies that we have from you know ancient literature of this time. And in his biography, autobiography, it's it's clear once you know the the standards of the time and the way people wrote histories that a lot of the narratives, a lot of the stories that he's writing are these type scenes. So they are straight out of the, the Greek rhetorical manuals of, you know, if you want to present yourself in this way or present a certain point, then you write a story like this. So Josephus, for example, says that he was, uh, you know, from a priestly class, a priestly lineage, and had come, um, had descended from the Hasmonean kings. And then he provides a direct lineage. So, you know, this guy who was the son of this guy who was the son of this guy, um, but the the his lineage falls apart when you look at it. It just doesn't make any sense um, chronologically. Um, so obviously Josephus had just fabricated his his lineage. He may really have been descended from you know from he, it seems he really was uh, a priest and he probably did descend from the Hasmoneans. But it's possible he just knew you know how far his his genealogy went back like a generation or two. But in order to establish his credibility, he therefore you know had to write this 
this sequence of you know who he was descended from, mm-hmm. and that crops up in all kinds of different stories that he that he tells about himself. Um, you know the the different ob- uh, objectors and enemies that he had and how he responded to them. A lot of these stories that he tells are straight out of the the rhetorical manuals. So when looking back, you you have to ask, well, did this really happen? And it's hard to say because it might have, but it doesn't necessarily have to have happened because this is just the way that historians wrote at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was only like until, I don't know, a few hundred years ago that these standards really changed. Mm-hmm. Up until up until then, historians were still um, like accepting all the all the evidence, you know, what we'd call evidence today, just as um, a brute fact, like, okay, well, you know, Josephus wrote this, that therefore that must be true. And then now we can, now that we have the facts, now we can judge the history. So because Josephus says Herod, the king did this or that, um, this was good and this was bad. He was, this was a good decision. This was a bad decision. This guy was evil. This guy was good. All based on this narrative that may in fact have nothing to do with reality. Mm-hmm. So it was only, it's only been relatively recently that historians have actually come to this idea of, you know, empirical evidence. What do we know? Why do we know it? You know, what don't we know? And to actually come up with, you know, the, the, to reassess these base facts. And before that, it was all based on authority. Mm-hmm. So, like, we, we knew our history because someone had said this was the way it was, and that person was a reliable source. And it's so funny that today, now that we have these, um, these criteria for truth and objectivity in journalism and history and all kinds of sciences, still on the, you know, the, the popular level, the mass level, it is still 100% almost um, this appeal to authority mm-hmm. where the, we have the major newspapers who are the objective sources. And I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that probably everyone listening, I know it's true for me, ha- knows at least one person, if not several, that will reject a piece of information if it comes from a questionable source being like, you know, alternative media or something like that. And the Internet, yeah, the Internet. Oh, did you read that on the Internet? as if, you know, the Internet has nothing true on it, and yet they will um, accept these reputable sources as being true without question. So if you heard it on the BBC, you heard it on CNBC or CBC, whatever, CNN, then it's just kind of accepted as true, and we operate as if it's true. Now, if you, like, corner one of these people and, you know, ask them about that and really grill them about it, they may say, oh, well, okay, maybe maybe that isn't true. You know, we'd have to look into it more. But on a day-to-day basis, they operate as if those news bites were true. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen that. I mean, it's it's despicable on, like, even Canadian news, just the amount of, of BS that gets spouted. And it's while it's being spouted, it is it's being presented as if it's 100% true as if there is no question about it mm-hmm. and then and then then it gets accepted after that by the people listening to this news as being true oh it's terrible i mean um so i used to work at a job that was would get me coming home at 1 in the morning 2 in the morning so i would be reading sot all day which is wonderful because it gathers news from all over the world we you know all of you know we'll They'll run stuff from the Telegraph. They'll run stuff from the New York Times. They'll run stuff from Press TV, like everybody. Then I'd be driving home, and after midnight, they would pick up a BBC feed on NPR, and I would be wanting to shout at the radio while I was driving home because I would. they would be proffering a story that I'd read three different viewpoints on mm-hmm. from three different sources, 
and I could say, okay, you left that out. You twisted this. That didn't even happen. No, 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 no. And it was just like, how how <laughs> can you look in the mirror in the morning and spout this nonsense? Yeah, I mean, I just... Oh. I just watched a um, an investigative journalism, you know, video documentary on on Canadian TV. I can't remember what channel or what the show was, but it was about these uh, Ukrainian Canadian doctors who have volunteered to go over to Ukraine to Kiev, volunteer their services to perform surgeries for um, soldiers and militiamen who have been injured in the wars in the war over there. And so they go over there and they're, you know, reconstructing skulls from, you know, young guys who have gotten their, you know, shot by snipers. Um, they treated a young, you know, eight-year-old boy who lost three limbs from a grenade, killed his brother, and um, just all kinds of just kind of horrific deformations as a result of the war going on there. Now, you know, that in itself is just interesting just to see who these doctors are, what they're doing, what the injuries are, you know, and arguably you know, doing good work, volunteering their time to people who have been injured in, the, in these wars. But the, there are two. There were two things that stood out for me. One was what is what was said explicitly to describe the situation there. The other was what wasn't said. And one of the things that was said repeatedly was that these men and these young boys were injured um, because they volunteered to go to this war. They weren't drafted. They were volunteers, and this was said in such a way to imply that this was this made it even more horrible that these these young men were just so patriotic that they volunteered to you know to to put themselves in the firing line to defend their their freedom and democracy, and that they went to East Ukraine to fight quote Russians and Russian-backed terrorists end quote. So the the first people they were fighting were Russians. The implication of this is that the majority, the, the, you know, the, the biggest fighting force that they were going up against was Russians, which is, first of all, totally untrue. Um, there were, you know, the majority, the vast majority of the people fighting are in local militias from East Ukraine. Now, they are arguably Russian in the sense that they're Russian-speaking, they're so-called ethnic Russians, but they are, you know, according to law, Ukrainian citizens, or were at the time. To call them Russians is misleading to, you know, so as to imply that they are Russian citizens. They're not. They're, they're Ukrainian citizens. There are Russians fighting there, um, you know, at least according to the, to the Russian government. There are volunteers, you know, people, you know, military men who might um, take a leave of absence and then volunteer to go over fighting. Um, but there are also Frenchmen, Belgians, you know, Spaniards, a Canadians, a Texan. I mean, there's all kinds of nationalities fighting on both sides. But the, the viewpoint was that Russia had invaded and these men volunteered to go and fight the Russians, which is just, I mean, there's so much wrong with that that it's, it's hard to know where to start. Another thing, or no, this is one of the things that I didn't say. They're, they're showing one of the guys that, um, that's in the hospital waiting for treatment, and on his arm is his jacket, his uh, you know, military fatigues, his camo jacket, and right there visible for everyone to see is the right sector logo. So this guy was a right sector volunteer, member of the right sector. They, didn't, they never comment on that. They didn't mention, you know, what battalions these guys were from once. They didn't mention right sector or Azov um, or, or Svoboda. Nothing like that. It was just these are there are volunteers in the Russian in the Ukrainian military. So no mention that this guy was right sector. No mention what right sector is. You know, no mention of the the fascist um, leanings of right sector or Azov. You know, these volunteer battalions that all these guys were in apparently. 
And so, I mean, right there, I, it, well, that's why I think the French documentary that was just aired was really good in a sense that they exposed the, the, the fascist mentality of these these groups in Ukraine. But you didn't get any of that from this uh, from this program. There's not one mention of the fact that these guys and the Ukrainian military for months on end every day were shelling civilian areas, schools, hospitals, residential homes. No mention of the casualties among the East Ukrainians, all the children that were killed, the innocent people, women, old people, um, nothing like that. Um, and when there is plenty of evidence of this, you can, you, know, you can watch the videos of these people being killed. You can see their bodies. You can see how they're torn apart. So it was a completely one-sided, biased example of, of, of journalism. Now, you know, they could say, oh, we weren't there to cover the, the site on, on East Ukraine. Now, this is, this is an example where I think that the, 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 the journal, journalistic objectivity, as it was defined, is an ideal that I think is good in very many ways. Um, of course, it is perverted in, in many ways, too. But in this example, they were not fair in the sense that they did not give a fair representation of the other side of this war. It wasn't disinterested. I mean, they, they were very much um, biased towards the, the rightness and the goodness uh, of the Ukrainian side in this war. And they were all like basically factual on the level of what they were directly showing, but left out other facts and made up certain other ones. And of course, it was just totally partisan. So in this sense, it would be uh, you know a good thing in journalism if they were to have presented the other side, presented what was going on on the other side, to give a little bit more nuance and um, detail about the scenario that these um, you know victims of of um, so they failed to provide the larger context. Yeah, failed to do that. Now, um, where this can go, where it gets into shady ground, is when you like you know we've kind of been talking about it. Is when this by or this nonpartisanship um, becomes an excuse to um, to either well to not take like a, a moral stance. So this would what was the quote from Littman about um, you know the devil, you know you know giving the devil hell or something. You know, that should be one part of, of journalism because to be totally disinterested is really to be not a human being. So that would be like, you know, there's there's about to be a new world war, let's say. You know, it looks like we could go that way. And as if there's just a journalist that would just, you know, not care one way or the other. It's like, oh, well, you know, I can't I can't say one way or the other whether, you know, a fascist re- regime in my country would be a good thing or a bad thing. That's not my job as a journalist. Well, no, that is your job as a journalist yeah. to show, first of all, to show the facts, where things are headed, what the beliefs and the policies of governments or other political parties that might might come to power are, and that that would be a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that should be one of the prime imperatives of, of a journalist. So- is, they're they're saying that it's not their job to extrapolate what these facts may lead to. Yeah, or even just to take a stance on whether they're good or bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you can have. I mean, I can imagine at least a a a TV program or you know a news station that is nonpartisan in the sense that they don't officially support any particular party. But that is not to say that 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 um, you know that they should not comment at all on what may be. A totally fascist, anti-human, savage, or you know, biased or bigoted or racist policy, mm-hmm. um, because I mean, nonpartisanship can simply mean that we can point out everything wrong about everybody, and 
And uh, on, oftentimes in practice, what it comes to mean is, well, we will not say any bad things about the people who are paying us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, the mainstream journalist's job is to present basically the, the psychopathic worldview to the public. And it's, it's, and it's just inherent in, as a part of you know, who they are and what they do. Like they're representing the the established authorities, and I think what makes it, um, I guess, easier. Well, Carolyn, you mentioned um, one of Kahneman's um, points was that you know the mind is uh, is just inherently lazy. Yep. You know, and we'll basically go to whatever information is easy and accessible. And one of the uh, things that happens in, in journalism is that you have these makers of news who, you know, they, they, they'll write the storyline and provide it to, you know, much smaller outlets. You know, the smaller outlets are, are likely underfunded and, and overworked, and they don't have the time to do actual investigative journalism. That's mm-hmm. reserved for you know, the the larger corporate media types. Mm-hmm. Who are funded by people who have certain biases that they want presented. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have, you know, even the smaller media outlets going to, you know, the, the larger sources who have this pre-made storyline that they can use. And, you know, and that's easy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that just, be it's, it's, it's accessible. And when you have hundreds and hundreds, you know, multiply those hundreds and hundreds of times, then you also have this information that is easily accessible to the public who also isn't going to, is, is overstressed and overworked, and they're not going to take the time to investigate these things for themselves mm-hmm. and to look into, you know, alternative uh, stories. And I think part of the problem there is is this uh, is this kind of, uh, di- disinterested tone that uh, Harrison was alluding to a moment ago. Um, you know, uh, a, a journalist writing for the Western press will mention something like the potential for World War III in such a kind of uh, dry, uh, sanitized, uh, as if there's no uh, there's no meaning behind it. There's no very theoretical. Uh, it's theoretical. It's in, it's abstract. Uh, there isn't the the kind of visceral um, uh, realization of what it actually means, uh, because uh, U.S. journalism, in particular, is exists in such a bubble. Um, for that reason, it's really refreshing uh, to read someone like a Paul Craig Roberts mm-hmm. or a Joaquin Engdahl. or or a, Ephraim Engdahl. Ephraim yeah. I mean, these are people who on an emotional level, have processed more or less what seems to be objective information, realize what its implications are, uh, and and have this, um, you know, as you were saying before, Harrison, this kind of a real human uh, response to it and a responsibility uh, to be carriers of this information uh, to people who have been so bogged down in this uh, in this kind of uh, information wasteland um, that that we're, we've been bombarded with. Um, so, I think uh, I think for those who who do write on these subjects, who do see the writing on the wall, 
who've recognized the patterns of lies uh, that have been propagated and pushed and and um, and just uh, repeated uh, in in Goebbels' big lie mode for so long. I mean, it's it's such a uh, it's such an egregious thing. It's such an insult um, that that they're able to kind of translate this realization into their writing, mm-hmm. and um, and that's extremely valuable. And uh, so, you know, I, I think it's it's a rare journalist who's who's come to that in this day and age. We just don't have enough people of that caliber of erudition and and knowledge and humanity. Who are willing to be poor. Who are willing to be poor and, and willing to be uh, called idiots or tinfoil hat people or conspira- conspiracy theorists. Um, and yet, their map to reality is far closer, mm-hmm. uh, as we understand it, I think, in many cases, uh, than, than all of this kind of established, um, uh, respectable journalism that gets shoved down our throats for so long. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's an interesting distinction that I think um, you know we de- need to make surrounding emotion because you know on one hand we're talking about how emotion can cloud thinking mm-hmm. and can make us less objective, but we're also saying that there are human emotions that are useful and needed for uh, an objective presentation yes. of, mm-hmm. of of material. So you know what what is that distinction? And uh, I think you know it. It revolves around one, how aware we are of you know these these lower emotions that distort you know our our thinking, like um, fear and and you know, the you know just just the the things that really distort and you know prevent us from from thinking through rather than seeing something objectively or seeing some seeing looking at the facts and then feeling the natural emotions that come from that. And using that as a driving force to communicate that. I think the order is important. Mm-hmm. The, that that first factual one, two, three assessment of what is and formulating the possibilities that could arise from all of those you know, factors. Then you have the emotional response. I think what happens is that um, when you don't have this bias thing, you have that kick in first. The emotion, the fear, the bias, the prejudice, the whatever, and then you take all those facts and you fit them around the emotion that you have, and it's it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. It's very easily easy to hijack people. We're we're very hijackable. <laughs> yeah, it's an innate thing. Yeah. I think we may have a caller here. I'm just going to see if this person is listening or would like to say hello. Hello, caller. Are you there? Hey. Hey, what's up? This is Steven. Hello, hey, Steven. Hi, Steve. Hey, hey, how are y'all doing? This this uh, this topic is right up my uh, alley. Um, <laughs> as I actually, um, I, I spent I spent quite a few years in university, you know, pursuing my master's degree, where this was this, this uh, conundrum was front and center of my focus, and um, you know, I got into this um, particular branch of uh, philosophy called neo. Structuralism and what, what also is known as in the in the realm of postmodernism, and I studied um, Derrida, I studied uh, Jacques Deleuze, Foucault, um, 
and many other philosophers, the continental philosophers, uh, were mostly from France. And you know, and you know what I came away from all these years of just deep study in these books. You know what I, you know what I came away from it. You know, tens of thousands of dollars. You know, in tuition and. It's like I can't understand what I can't understand what the hell they're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found it. Like, was was really obscure. Oh my God! If, if you're not on crack, look. If you're not on crack when you start studying it, by the end of it, you're going to be on crack, man. <laughs> and then, um, you know, the sad thing is, um, you know, I had this realization because at the same time I was I was um, I, I I had read read everything from Noam Chomsky. And um, so in my particular English department, my, the head of my department, he was uh, a theory head, so to speak, but he studied under Jacques Derrida, right? So when I came out, I came up with a theory that we are we're doing everything, we're, we're engaging in this in a particular context, which happens to be we are in the academic system of the empire, at the height of the empire. And so this, uh, the long and the short of this is this has a, a pragmatic function of um, rendering people incapable of um, organizing politically with other human beings in their society. Because um, one time I had this, I had this come to, to the for, forefront as an epiphany because I had befriended, befriended a janitor, this African-American man, he's really nice and, he came in the classroom, was after class one day, and he's like, well, what are y'all studying? And I tried to explain it to him using all this jargon and stuff, and he looked at me like I had three eyes, right? And I just had it, and it, I had, that really brought to home, you know, just the um, the uselessness of this this type of inculcation and this matri- matriculation into becoming an intellectual in our society. And um, so, anyway, the, the long and the short of it is um, I couldn't finish my, my thesis, and I put two years off to do it. And I'd done all my coursework, and I realized that I did not want to become a professor because I wanted to tell them in my thesis, like, just how much crap that it was. So I was but I had this incredible fear to do so, and it was this in, the incredible uh, kind of, like, paradox where that you know i kind of oscillated this kind of schizophrenic oscillation anyway um you know just basically i came to the conclusion that um you know i I would i would i would have a very hard time fitting into the university um being a radical so to speak and and i wasn't prepared to to engage all of that pain and and all of that um you know you, you would be forever an adjunct and you know and so forth and so on and i'm sure there's people that have went through that and, and they're on the other side of it and they contribute something important to our university system today. But um, anyway, getting back to this um, subject, I liked some of the comments I heard after I hung up last week is that, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not trying to say that there is no, there's nothing to grab onto that you could, you know, compare what one person says to another and, and put more weight on, one interpretation over another, this kind of extreme relativism where nothing has any kind of intrinsic value over any other type of narrative, because then we would we would totally be screwed, incapable mm-hmm. of um, affecting any kind of difference 
or engaging any kind of political mobilization within our communities and our society. That would that's exactly where I see that the dominant discourse of uh, Derrida and neo-structuralism, um, this incredible like relativism that you come out the other side of, and then also with laden with all this jargon, your your inability to express clearly and succinctly just basic ideas that people can grab onto and go, wow, I, mm-hmm. I get that, you know? And if you can't mm-hmm. do that with the janitor, if you can't engage a discourse or an interpretation of our reality with the janitor or a construction worker or, you know, anybody, um, then it's just not going to happen as far as affecting any political change. And um, I, that's why I believe there's, um, you know, our university system has kind of gravitated toward that and, you know, what's very disturbing to me, um, you know, I'm not trying to say that, um, you know, that um, there is no, there's nothing to grab onto. But, but I am trying to say is that in the end analysis, um, you're not going to have any ultimate truth that, that becomes that you can put in concrete. And everybody else, they have to either agree with that or if they depart from it, they're, they're just, uh, they're inferior, they're in error and all of that because... I think that things flow into in particular context, and, and we are also in a dynamic. And in other words, we're in a, a constant unfolding of our reality. And um, so, when you look at it in that context, um, there was this guy named Warner Herzog. He was uh, he's done films and documentaries. I'm sure you guys have heard of him. But he made a statement that he made a statement that was very compelling to me. He basically said about the art form of uh, storytelling is that truth you know with the big t exists in a state of being uh, of unfolding and then being ecstatic so in other words it's like the, the, there's a there's this kind of uh there's this kind of like glowing and beautiful thing about revelation when when things are revealed and you can see the quote unquote truth of it and it's all of its glory and um, and that's ecstatic, and that's something that it compels you to spread the word and to do so artfully and beautifully. And then I think that we have a history as humans of, of having those prophets and those people that expose the truth, and I think that exists in today's society uh, just as it did 10,000 years ago and 1,000 years ago and so forth. But I would say this, um, when it comes to uh, the subject of news, um i i would just i would just i will leave the conversation with this uh insight as well um it is about context in which we're all like viewing this and if you're a lawyer and you're making 350,000 and we're in your first 5 years of your practice and you've got vacations and investment properties and you're gaining a name and you've got the beautiful wife that can get breast augmentation and plastic surgery and your kids are going to private school you can be very intelligent you can have a very very high iq you can be very good at what you do in the court system Uh, but you're going to filter certain things out of your consciousness that just Mm -hmm. don't go with the dominant flow of your society so in other words you're not going to investigate in depth um, who's right and who is wrong with respect to uh, Ukraine, Russia, NATO, U.S., and so forth. You're going to go. You're going to go with what the dominant society and all the experts and everybody that you 
here interviewed, you know, analyzing the situation. You're going to go with their interpretation because to not do so would so put you on the outs with the, with the dominant society that it just there's no practical reason for you to do that. And I would think you that say that's was what a, happened. Would you go say ahead. that was a matter of, uh, of a survival instinct? Yes, it's, and, and it's, you could put that in the realm of pragmatics. And um, mm. I think that, like, uh, a couple of days ago, I, I had a conversation with this guy and talking about permaculture. He was an older guy. He had property. And anyway, he brings up that I get that he's a Christian, you know, and his thing was like, oh, Obama's betrayed Israel. You know what? And you know what I've learned? I'm 52 now. So you know what I learned? Just don't go there. And he asked me, you know, what's your faith? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And did you go to eat church? Oh, no. You know, I said everything I needed to say to, like, not escalate any disagreement or ill will. And um, you know why? Because why, why, why do otherwise in that particular context? And it might mm-hmm. seem like um, being selling out, this and that and the other, but... Um, you know, I I just I just believe it's a function of pragmatics, and I believe, you know, that essentially a lot of people, doctor, lawyer, no matter where you're at in the hierarchy, you do sense that we're full of crap and we tell lies and we are imperialists. You sense all of that. You don't investigate it. You don't you don't engage, um, you know, books and and so forth that would emphasize that, but you sense it. But then. It will come down to pragmatics in the end because um, why 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 put your career in jeopardy and your social relationships because you know what what value practically will it have for doing so and um, sure so I kind of I think that when we're when we're looking at the larger topic that we're talking about um, I believe that the the field of the idea of pragmatics comes to play so much and it's such a force that um I think it's worth considering that too when we interpret other people's supposed like ignorance or stupidity and all of that because um ignorance has a functional uh you know a practical uh function as well for existing in the society, you know. So anyway I'll just I'll just leave it Yeah, it it does. And it's very disturbing for me because you know, I'm in a position where I've been walloped and I have certain ideals that I've invested in for many years. And and when I see that, you know, the fundamental injustice being done to Russia and the, the, the deformed interpretations of Russia's motivations and, and um, actions where they totally gloss over, you know, NATO and U.S. designs and imperialism and lies, and all, it makes me mad as hell. But um, on the other hand... When I listen to NPR, you know what I also say to myself, well what else would you ever expect from this from this uh this incredible debacle of hypocrisy that's going on right in front of our eyes right now. And especially well, when it comes to a really interesting point, Stephen. Um sorry to cut you off there, but I'd like to get oh, back no, to that for just a second. Uh because I I completely agree with you. Um it it is not pr- pragmatic in the least to try and present an alternative point of view to someone who is a dyed-in-the-wool whatever, uh, who has a belief system and who is so invested in their reality uh, 
that to um, that to try and uh, shift things a little bit and present a new perspective would only end up bringing hell upon yourself. Um, at the same time, it seems like that there are some people in this world for whom it's not pragmatic uh, to to go in that to to be invested at all in in those uh, worldly things, for lack of a better term. Um, that uh, the only pragmatic solution is to uh, do the work of looking at things ab- as objectively as it's possible to. Um, what? Yeah, what is it yeah, about it, those people it, or, it, or us if if we can be said to be those people? What what's the difference and, there? And, what do you, you know, what do you think's involved? And you know what you know what you know what you know what really brings it home is like you can always say that it's not pragmatic for me to do anything other than go along with what it is going on right now. And if people had done that in the past, we wouldn't have had, have advanced at all morally or ethically as a as a people. And we would be um, we would be suffering enslavement and all kinds of social ills that are greater than we suffer now because people were just too chicken. They lacked the courage to come out and say this this stuff ain't right. And um, even if it meant their imprisonment or death, you know, thank God these people did so because we wouldn't have the even though we live in a horrible place right now and we have a lot of problems coming down the pike right at us. If we don't muster the courage to do something better, more intelligent, and more beautiful, we're doomed. That's it, you know? Well, you might say objectivity could be applied to that. Um, Yes. Yes, yes, something needs to be done, but it needs to be done with, you know, as Castaneda said, with forbearance and timing. And I'm going to fangirl Putin here just a little bit. Um, The situation in Syria had deteriorated for five years running. But I believe through all that time, Russia had kept a very close eye on it, objectively assessing the different forces at work as they came and went and, and increased in their in their uh you know, in their influence, especially, you know, when ISIS finally pulled itself together, that by keeping an objective close eye on this situation, they were able to choose the proper moment to intervene and yes. that yes it required courage and nerve and but because they had made as clear-eyed an analysis of the situation and weighed all the possibilities and then decided that this is the time that this this particular choice of Putin and Russia has been very effective yes and you know I'm going to hang up after this but I, I'm extremely heartened when I go on to, like, The Guardian or anywhere they allow comments, and it's interesting that, like, a lot of the BBC, when they have an article, they'll totally close down comments. But where they do allow comments, you see that a huge amount of very intelligent, um, educated people just don't buy the propaganda. And it's just that's so heartening to see that. And, and, and that's a reality that we live in, and that's a beautiful thing that's happening. So. I'm going to hang up, and I really enjoy the the topic and and y'all's conversation on it. Oh, we appreciate your <clears throat> we appreciate your thoughts, Stephen. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Just, just a bye bye, Stephen. Thanks bye-bye. for calling. Just a quick comment. I um, in the mid '90s, a friend of mine invited me to a lecture at, at New York University, and the speaker uh, was this French guy. Ended up being 
uh, Jacques Derrida. <laughs> um, but I found out after the first two minutes that he only spoke French, and since I didn't speak any French, I uh, I wouldn't be understanding anything if I stayed. So I dodged a bullet there. Yeah. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have made much more sense if he was speaking in English. But <laughs> well. One of our, a couple of the points that Stephen brought up in in relation to this conversation uh, was uh, you know context and pragmatism, and you know I think those are you know, really important points um, in in understanding how to be objective and in, in, in looking at you know situations because like, just living under empire under these pathological types we've been prone to accept um, just this black and white thinking. Uh, in our definition of things, you know, uh, we automatically see democracy as good and uh, dictatorship as bad, and that's applied, you know, across the board. But you know, things aren't so uh, black and white. <laughs> Would you also say that we have been unknowingly coerced into accepting their definition of who is democracy and who yeah, dictatorship? Yeah, exactly. Is, right. Rather than looking at the objective action. Mm-hmm. Objectively looking at the actions of the U.S., they are behaving as an empire. Right. Objectively looking at the actions of Russia, since you know I wanted to go down to some particular examples, their actions have been an annoyance to the empire, but nothing about them says that they are out to create the empire or recreate the Soviet Union. But because we're shielded from the actual facts, mm-hmm. then we have to accept the definitions we're given. Yeah, that, and that's a huge thing, is that we're not given all the facts, or that it's it's not a part of our awareness mm-hmm. to see the United States uh, in, in this light. And, you know, uh, the example that I was thinking of was uh, Cuba. You know, um, the... Fidel Castro has been been given such a bad reputation, uh, you know, because he's a supposed dictator. Cuba has endured, you know, over the past what fifty, sixty years, and they had to have a very uh, controlled government in order to survive. In order, like in a very pragmatic way, you know, they they needed to uh, incorporate a. Just the, I mean, like the the blockade and the the uh, the sanctions are, you know, just the 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 um, the economic um, warfare against Cuba. You know, they needed to uh, develop some some pretty smart ways to in order to survive and and to, and to deal with that. And you know, and Americans don't look at things like that. Yeah. Well, there's um. There was a story, speaking of uh, American and Russian um, perspectives on, uh, on what's been happening and, and how all of this is being presented to people. Uh, we carried it on side. It's Obama's new budget calls for massive increase in propaganda spending. And basically the point was that um, you know the Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, and the Broadcasting Board of Governors – uh, basically, this umbrella for the propaganda organs of um, of empire. Uh, Obama saying we need more money, and in previous conferences we've heard Hillary Clinton uh, discuss this, John Kerry, um, and and we know that uh, 
websites like RT and Sputnik, uh, which they cite um, as the reasons why they need more money, operate on a much smaller scale uh, at a fraction of the cost. So I find that very interesting. And I wonder if there is something about um, the awareness of of most people uh, where this information that's being put out by Sputnik and RT, for instance, has more weight, uh, more substance um, by its very nature, by, by the intentions of, uh, of those who are behind those um, websites and, uh, and channels. Um, we've had one comment by one of our chatters who said that she saw an interview in Russian with the head of RT. And the head of RT was asked why they focus on anti-U.S. things. Her answer was that they don't focus on anti-U.S. things, but that they focus on things that the West doesn't show. And she also said that if Western journalists were really doing their job, meaning showing the whole story in an objective way, RT would be out of a job. Um, instead, their viewership is growing, which says a lot. So th- does objective information... Uh, have a weight, a substance. Uh, I mean, that's that's what I'm. I think I think it does. Okay. I think it does, and also the the intent. Uh, I don't know whether anybody saw this, uh, but RT did a little birthday video for their ten year anniversary. Are they ten years old now? Mm-hmm. And yeah. sending themselves up as you know, mocking mocking themselves as supposedly this organ of propaganda for Russia. The head of RT. She's hilarious, you know, and all their major journalists participated in this. You know, this is how the Russians do it. And, you know, they were little prison things. And, you know, you'll get your bread and water when you finish story and all this other stuff. But it was it was absolutely hysterical. And I thought I could not in a hundred, hundred years imagine any Western outlet sending themselves up like this. But the other thing that was really interesting is, is the uh, birthday message that Putin had for them, which is um, – I congratulate you. It's been 10 years of accomplishment. I feel the creativity and joy you have in your work. These are people who appear to love what they're doing. They feel, you know, they have a mission. There's there's pleasure and fun and, and a sense of purpose that I don't think you can will yourself into when you're working for an organization that is simply spreading propaganda. There's It's it, the whole tenor and feel of it is completely different. And I, th- I think that adds to this, the weight of the objectivity is also the sense of purpose and and service that those who work for these more objective organizations have. And, you know, just to, to add to that, too, I, I think, um, you know, intention can be a part of it, but there's so many people who are well are well-intentioned, but still, you know, have have all these biases. Um I think a component of, you know, this this intention that can have a force is also the sincerity. Yeah, you know, um you know, it it comes across that RT uh and and their efforts, it's it's very sincere. You know, uh they they're not just pushing an an agenda to that that's uh, you know, just for Russia. But I think there's an element of, you know, wanting to expose the truth of things. 
Yeah, there's a, a certain tone. Um, RT, for instance, has a section on uh, articles concerning events in the USA. And, um, you know, we quite often refer to websites like the Free Thought Project and uh, Activist Post and in many instances and several others where there is a, a kind of um, uh, maybe less so with Activist Post, for instance, because uh, they're willing to go a little a little further in in some areas. Um, but there is this kind of, um, it's all of a piece. Uh, it's almost as if uh, the people involved in RT and Sputnik and, and those alternative sites um, on the web uh, that cover news of the U.S. Um, objectively uh, are all, they're all almost interchangeable in some way. And it doesn't mean that they, you know, there's any kind of um, uh, it doesn't mean that there's a bias uh, it just means that they're willing to look at, at what's ugly uh, they're willing to see things uh, in their you know in their essence uh, a little more readily than than many other places and suppose this just maybe suppose that this interchangeability is actually that they each particular site is seeing this set of facts in the same way, which sort of lends credibility that maybe that's actually the way it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they, you know, there's a, it's all kind of informed by a similar understanding. Um, you know, how many more articles, for instance, uh, covering uh, geopolitics in particular, but also the U.S. police state, um, are informed by an understanding of psychopathy. I mean, seven or eight years ago, uh, it just wasn't there. Uh, and now, because it's it's the only explanation that we that we really have that's got a lot of research and information to back it up and point to things specifically. Now that we have this, people are able to point to certain things and and draw pretty much the same conclusions and. And explain things uh, in in all their horror. <clears throat> One other point that Stephen brought up that I'd like to dig into a little bit was uh, he brought up the you know, the ignorance of people, and as well as you know how we how we look at uh, those who who may be uninformed and um, in in the alternative media, you might go to you know some sites and often see you know this. Um, this rage against the sheep, the sheeple, and you know there, there's a there's a, a venomance there, and you know I think that there's also a a lack of understanding of uh, what is happening um, to make people basically shut down um, psychologically and you know just not not want to pay attention to anything except for you know their their own stuff that's in front of them and. Uh, this ties. I think this ties into uh, a couple of like psychological components uh, or dynamics. Um, one which relates to trauma. Um, it, trauma can be a huge um, driving force in shaping uh, the way that we see the world. And if we don't work through those things, they'll they'll just remain there in in, in our psyche and and continue. You know, it's just like it, it's that lens. That's there that will always um, you know distort what we see, and the 
you know, the, the, the um, newsmakers know this. You know, I, I think at the, you know, at the very, very top levels, you know, there are people who know how to manipulate people and how to use trauma. I mean, we, we saw this with, with 9-11 mm-hmm. and how 9-11 was used, like it was played for, I don't know, weeks, like the, just on, on repeat. You know, we saw towers come down millions of times. Like it was ridiculous. Like just, and that was a a way of traumatizing uh, the population. And it was, um, uh, I think it was Naomi Klein who who came out with uh, the uh, the shock doctrine book. And you know, it, she talked about how um, how these how there's basically these psychopaths, right? Who who traumatize people in order to introduce a new ideology. And when you're in that state of shock, you know, your your defenses uh are are basically shut down and you it, it's it's a it's a form of, of uh manufactured disintegration, right? And that's like it's it's an opportunity for, for these pathological types to impose um, the new concepts that they that they want the people to believe and accept and follow. Now, what's interesting is that there, there seems this 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 disintegrative process. We can also consciously try to work through um, deconstructing the the beliefs that we've come to accept, and um, and it does involve. You know, a it's not. I don't think it's of the same. It's not of the same nature as as a imposed trauma, but there is a shock involved when you look at the world and see what's going on, and you know, feel some some empathy about you know these people that are suffering and and dying all over the world, and and you know, it's it is a huge shock, and it does break down. Um, some of the structures that that you've come to accept, and you know, and that is a useful application of of uh, of the shock. So the the huge shock being the shock of of reality, objective information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, it is. It it can be a very long and painful process, and uh, if if one has some serious sacred cows and programming that they've been living with for a very long time. You really have to want to uh, to know. Uh, otherwise, why put yourself through such a thing? There has to be a drive for objectivity, for another uh, or truth. Um, and uh, it's the extent to which we're invested in uh, not living in truth for living an easy existence or a relatively easy existence, because even day-to-day living can be a challenge, um, is the extent to which it's going to be difficult to go against or to object to all of the uh, the false information and the, and the programming and thinking that we've been uh, bombarded with for so long. I liked how you were, used the word object there. Yeah, I had to throw that in somewhere. <laughs> Well, I think just to make a couple comments on the lawyer, the hypothetical lawyer that Stephen was talking about. Um, I think that person kind of 
represents most people, you know, maybe even all people in a sense, that um, you know, everyone's got a starting point, and some people never leave that starting point, but that's really the where we all come from is this you know living in a world where we're immersed by this culture and just the way things work and this gets down to the economy religion you know politics just what kind of job you are and how it works into the society around you and so you know I totally agree with you Stephen when you say that um you know just because um, someone may not share um, a viewpoint or an interpretation of information that's available. That doesn't make that person intrinsically, you know, um, bad or or worthless or anything like that. Um, just to keep in mind the distinction of that that with a person like that, there are things that they that they don't know, and may, they may have viewpoints that are just objectively false or um, even self-defeating. Um, ultimately. And what we've what we've really got to do individually is to to make a choice and ask ourselves, um, you know, what really matters to us. And if um, you know, so if a person has that drive, um, you know, there are things that have to be done. And part of that is um, getting over. Or, well, first of all, understanding, getting to know what the the biases are, what the what the programming is that we have that makes us see reality through certain lenses. If we can come to some kind of understanding of what those things are, that will make us more objective, more able, um, better able to see the world objectively. Because starting from a point like that, um, you know, there's not much that can be done when you are totally run by your biases, where every piece of information automatically gets filtered according to, you know, preconceived ideas, uh, assumptions about the way the world works, about for example, like democracy, if you have a certain idea about democracy, unless you ha- get information that contradicts that uh, that opinion, that uh, that conviction, and unless you're willing to entertain the idea that you might be wrong about it, then you're just going to be stuck there. So I think that's the one of the first steps is be willing to think that maybe you're wrong, and um and so it isn't pragmatic it isn't uh it probably isn't a good idea to get into you know a debate or a fighting match with anyone like who who still has like deeply held beliefs like that um but we just have to keep in mind that by putting information out there those people who who may have the capability of questioning themselves and thinking oh maybe i might be wrong about that you know that's i think that's where what we're here to do it is the problem of going against um those deeply held, they're almost religious in nature beliefs about, you know, your society and the one you live in. I mean, we're in an election year. And, you know, if you look at it objectively, it doesn't really matter who is elected because policies and, you know, actions of the government carry on regardless. But it is very hard for people to look and say, yes, this had no effect. My vote, I mean, I voted for this, that, and the other, for this person who represented these things, and it did not happen. I mean, I I had a moment like that long, long before I ever knew anything about SOD or anything like that. But, you know, I was watching Bill Clinton being elected, and he had Mm -hmm. sort of this Obama-esque 
sure. hope and change, and he's cool, and he had like a you know a Fleetwood Mac theme song, and I mean like what what more could you want? <laughs> and I remember, I mean like yeah, he was good looking. He played the sax. I mean I didn't think he was good looking, but a lot of people thought he was. And I remember thinking, on the one hand, feeling so good, and it's like wow, this is going to be really good, and then thinking you know. This is not going to change anything. It is not going to make any difference. <laughs> and I wasn't particularly upset about that, but I had a sort of feeling of settling, of sort of realizing that it was bullshit and that's just the way it was and you know, and and this was not going to this kind of a hoopla and and production number was not going to work anymore. And you know, as Clinton went along, of course things went downhill and it was like if you can come to these things, I think it takes some of the emotional pain out of it because you're sort of prepared for it. You It doesn't get to you anymore, these highs and lows of emotional hope and then emotional disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing because that, again, lets you step back and look at the world with slightly clearer eyes. Well, uh, Harrison, you brought up this issue of capacity, and Elon, you mentioned it a little bit earlier too um, during Stephen's call. You know, are there some people who have the capacity, or you know, a a drive uh, to want to know versus you know others who who might not? And you know, this is a I think a a pretty t- a touchy subject because the uh, this kind of discussion has been you know really distorted and used for some really evil things uh in in the past um you know in in particular it's been used to uh in definition and distinctions of race and or of you know um maybe and and currently too you know in in regards to to muslims arabs and you know, in the past, it's been uh, Jews, uh, black people, and, and, and so on. And, you know, if we can look at people in terms of um, innate psychological um, uh, framework, you know, we know that there is this existence of psychopaths and that fundamentally uh, inside they have a different psychological landscape than other people. And, you know, so can we look at, um, you know, the humanity, you know, in, in uh, with a different lens to kind of tease out this, this, uh, this issue? You know, are there some who simply, you know, don't have the capacity to really want to know the truth of things? Or do they have the capacity... But given their internal landscape, as you said, or their makeup, uh, they decide or have the drive to completely use it for their advantage. Um, In other words, you have a CIA organ like Stratford, for instance, that analyzes. They pretty much have an objective understanding of some things. Uh, They said that... um, and this is a U.S. organization. They said, uh, you know, Ukraine was the most obvious coup, meaning that the U.S. committed this most obvious coup in history. They came out and said it, 
and yet uh, they're on the payroll, these U.S. intelligence agencies, and um, and they don't and they're a little careless about who they say these things to, and don't realize that there are people in the alternative media who have a problem with the U.S. Uh, having these coups and and uh, bringing uh, freedom and democracy to other countries, so-called. Um, so uh, there, uh, I think we can. Um, I, I think, for instance, look at Henry Kissinger. Uh, there's a story, folks. If you're not look at video, him, no. <laughs> but Carolyn just did this kind of monstrous uh, uh, physical bit of comedy there that was very good, uh, and I feel the same way, Carolyn. Um, but uh, there was just this article about him visiting Putin since he's come to Putin a few times over the past few years to have a chat. And apparently he visited him about a week ago, his most recent visit. And um, I think the article was from uh, it was either Russia Today or uh, TASS. But um, the, the gist of it was that he was delivering this message on behalf of uh, the elites in the West, the New World Order, um, which was, well, you know, we should be cooperating now. Um, you know, for 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 things to be okay, the Amer- the U.S. and Russia now needs to cooperate and and work together on issues like Syria, and um, where of course, uh, you know, he's just kind of, you know, he realizes on an objective level that Putin's got uh, the West in his little pocket. He's he's so far. I think it's, it's safe to say he's outthought and outstrategized the West on multiple fronts. Um, so you have a guy like Kissinger, who's no doubt very capable intellectually and, and knows quite a lot. Uh, but given his history in South America and, and his career as a politician, guy's a freaking monster. Guy's a monster in a suit. I mean, you know, there are very few people on that level whose names we know of. Uh, he, this is a creature extraordinaire. Uh, so anyway, just a thought about the fact that um, uh, I, I do think psychopaths might have, some of them anyway, the intellectual capacity to understand. But, but what, they, what it means to them intrinsically is altogether very different from what it would mean to, say, a man like Putin or... Assad or a journalist like Paul Craig Roberts or, or or someone else. Well, you might say then it's a tribute to Putin's, I hope, will to objectivity that he will not allow emotional biases to prevent him from dealing with these people for the information that can be gathered mm-hmm. and then feeding that back into their own analysis and, and making policy and decisions. Um, Putin once said that it doesn't matter what people say about me, what people think about me, I will talk to everyone. Mm-hmm. And that that means that he is willing to gather all information without any, you know, with as little interference from personal biases, personal feelings, personal ego. And that, I think, has been the key to Russia's success. Um, that's what I was thinking of before is that you can you can gauge the degree of objectivity by how successfully 
a person, a nation, or whatever interacts with reality. And Russia has interacted very successfully with its reality because it has been willing to see exactly what is there, which is not what the U.S. is doing. They have this uh, they have this idea in their head a world of being the world hegemon or being the world's policeman or whatever they're calling it these days. And their actions are based upon this concept that they have, not what's really happening. And it's it's not going well. It's not going well at all. Uh, one of the interesting things with Putin is, you know, you look at uh, the Russian history under, uh, since he's been in power, and he's been able to outmaneuver psychopaths. He's been able to have psychopaths basically turn around and support him, which is, it's utterly fascinating to, to watch. You know, he, well, you know, for some, he'll need to, you know, just like remove from, from power. And, you know, he did that with, with some of the Western oligarchs and that kind of set the tone. And like others kind of said, okay, all right, we'll, we'll listen to you. And so, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, is, is this, can this happen on uh, on the world stage as well? You know, I don't know to what degree, you know, to some extent, you know, we do see it happening. And, you know, it just goes to show that, um, that, that how smart this guy, this guy is. Well, just to come back to your point, Ilan, about, um, about this kind of objectivity, I think that you're right that in a, at a certain level, you know, by a certain definition or a certain standard of objectivity, yes, we can have people like Kissinger who are, in a certain sense, objective. So I think this can come back to kind of just facts on the ground, being aware of, uh, of a, a whole range of, of realities, fa- of facts, um, you know, situations, um, things going on in other countries. You know, you need to have an awareness of a whole lot of information in order to make any policy decision. Now, what, what it comes down to, I think, where, where the difference is, is the, the aim and the objective the, uh, what what that is pointing towards what the goal is um, and of course and what what a part of that will be the values that uh, that you have as an individual and that you're the the institution that you're a part of you know collectively has um, you know to a greater or lesser degree and so we can see I, I, I think uh, I like your the way you're looking at it Carolyn about um, kind of the effectiveness of, of what you're doing uh, you know, being some kind of uh, having some kind of relationship with objectivity, but um, I think that this then ties into that whole thing about an aim and what the values are, because if you look at someone like a serial killer, um, the the only serial killers we know of, you know, are the ones that get caught. There are um, probably and you know almost certainly many serial killers alive and active today that we don't know about, and some of whom probably will never get caught. Now, you could arguably say that they're very successful, that they have an objective view of of the reality and what they are doing in order to get away with these crimes. So, I mean, they, they plan them. They have an awareness of what needs to be done. They can, you know, scope out a victim, make sure the... They they pick the right scene to do it the right you know make sure they pick a day when no one they're not going to be interacting with someone they can get all this information this intelligence and then um, put it into operation and and commit a, a horrendous murder and then get away with it so in that in, in that sense they are successful and they've been effective uh, because of their objective view of the circumstances 
in regard to their aim. So I think that one extra um, kind of um, differentiation or one extra aspect that we need to look at is what that what that aim is and the, the question of are there um, objective aims, objective values, objective morals you know, to which um, we direct our actions. Um, and I think that's a, a whole other topic. Um, we might talk about it at a later date. Um, but um, just to keep that in mind, so you, you'll have um, people like Stratfor, and on the other hand, you'll have you know an individual like Putin who may have the same facts or a lot of the same facts at their disposal, and uh, but then it comes down to well, what you know objectively is their their purpose and what are they working towards, and I think that's where we get into the realm of what, what a lot of people call subjective, because you know our own personal aims are arguably subjective, but on the other hand, there uh, you know that gets into the nature of of values and purpose and the thing in itself and what you are on the deepest level you know beneath the surface appearances and beneath the the you know the objects of our bodies what uh, what really matters and what is the the reality of things that matter you know those are some deep philosophical questions um, but um, just to to kind of you know bring it home to a point they with you know if if we just look at the statements that someone like Putin has made and you can look at statements of any um you know well a lot of great leaders so called from history they are are doing what they think is right not just for themselves but for kind of this greater purpose and that greater purpose um seems to have you know resonances across cultures and across time on what the nature of that is because um, you can have, again, you can have a group of oligarchs who have a collective aim that will be the, you know, the best thing for Rome or the best thing for the American Empire. But when you get into the details of that, there that will be um, dependent on so many other greater evils and um, just continuing those evils. So it's a tricky subject to to figure out, you know, what what are all the aspects of of what people are doing and how they contribute to an aim and how they how they um, affect the 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 manner in which you'll be able to to get your aim and to make it a reality and so when you that it just makes the the complexity go up so much like if if you if you see putin for example as a person who who is a genuinely good person and who wants to do the best thing for russia just to think about the amount of things of in, first of all information that that a person in that position has to have the number of allies and the number of um, like compromises that you have to make because you have to be in that situation. You have to look at things pr pragmatically and say, okay, well, this is ideally what I would want. Can I realistically do that? Well, what can I re realistically do in this situation at this moment? Um, your options may be limited, but you move you know, step by step towards that greater goal. And when, when you're dealing with millions of people, then those may appear to be very incremental changes. Um, but uh, but I I'd say that they are there and that the I think that um, that at least in theory um, they are identifiable. We can see them. We can perceive them. We can get an objective um, a viewpoint of what those things are and what directions different countries, different people uh, are going towards. Well, it's definitely clear in the way he handled the oligarchs in that. You know, he couldn't just turf them all out, mm -hmm. but he was able to shape the situation. Also, it, it speaks, to, I think, to a, a larger view. I mean, 
when you look at it from the biggest point of view, you can almost say that somebody who is promoting the welfare of his people, the welfare, I mean, you could say it's because he has a genuinely good heart. He wants people to be happy. But countries like that are easier to govern. You don't have to spend a lot of money maintaining a military. I mean, there are very pragmatic reasons for making your population happy. I mean, I'd like to think he has a genuinely good heart, but pragmatically, a happy, contented, well-fed populace and good relations with all the countries around you is a very pragmatic thing to have. I mean, um, you don't have to be a saint to want those things. You just have to be a sensible individual. Uh, Contrast that with uh, Erdogan, who is busy totally wrecking his position in the world. I mean, you you went back... A a long time ago, you talked about how power can corrupt. I mean, that's your poster boy right there. This person is drunk with the idea of being the next caliphate. And whatever legacy he received from his previous, you know, from his uh, predecessor as the leader of Turkey, has totally squandered it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that that, um, characteristic of even just being sensible, like we could say, well, you just need to be sensible to see these things. But I think the fact that when you see a person... When you see a person doing um, something that you just need, uh, like good sense to do, that oftentimes, maybe more than more often than not, is a sign of an act- of a, a genuinely decent person. Because if you are not a genuinely decent person, then even that pragmatic um, goal won't outweigh the goal of serving yourself and getting more things for yourself and just to maintain your position and your um, your position in the hierarchy, in the pecking order. And so that's what I think we see. Yeah, that's what I think we see in um, in Western politics almost as a whole is a bunch of people who value their own position and bringing wealth to themselves more than, um, than they're willing to even look at the common sense approach to a situation. And so the 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 factor or the the happiness or the well-being of the people in your country doesn't even enter into your mental calculus. It's not even a consideration. It's because I mean, if you just look at the the situation on the ground, you're there, you've got power, you've got a lot of money, and and yeah, the people in your country may not be very happy with anything, but. I mean, you've already got it, so all that matters is keeping it. And so I think that just kind of seeing these these traces, these uh, these hints of things in 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 leaders' actions can can say a whole lot about them um, as people. And maybe you know, it's getting back to the subject of objectivity. It's hard to know in any individual case if you're totally right or wrong, um, because it takes a lot of information to be able to say you know with a relatively high degree of certainty, you know, whether you're right or not, but I think that we can catch traces of it and, and assign some, you know, probabilities of, um, you know, just even this person's probably like that, or, you know, they're probably not. And I think that in a lot of cases, that's all we can do. But um, with a lot of observation, I think we can go a little bit further, maybe. Well, the um, <clears throat> the other thing, too, is, you know, just living in this world of empire is that you know it it is tremendously difficult to make you know decisions that that are just basically sensible and mm-hmm. it takes courage you know, it takes courage to do it on even a very basic 
family level, you know, on an individual level, it takes a lot of courage. So, you know, when when you have a, a person doing this on, on the world stage, I think that, you know, following this course of being sensible and doing sensible things, it it do, it, it has to build, you know, I, I think uh, some some true character mm-hmm. um, and, you know, develop the, the uh, possibilities or the potential that uh, human beings have. And I think this, you know, kind of relates to um, the topic that you were discussing earlier, Harrison, about, you know, is there this objective aim and, you know, does it, does it relate to what we as, as human beings have as as a as a potential you know inside us you know what what does it mean to be fully human you know we, we walk around and we have all these these um these mechanisms and, and dynamics going on inside of us and you know a lot of them uh, lend towards just the division and and prejudices or you know just being pulled in one direction and then the other. But you know, is there something more inside of us that that we're able to achieve, and is that also beneficial to to others around us and to you know the world at large? Well, uh, you know, I wonder if um, I wonder if uh, comparing uh, you know the the Kissinger uh, versus Putin thing is is at all accurate now that I'm thinking of it a little bit further. Um, and I wonder if there isn't something uh, intrinsic to Russia and Putin today that is more objective, uh, insofar as they're able to see uh, how the how the behavior of the U.S. is less sustainable um, than Russia is, uh, or or attempting to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, may, maybe you know we we establish that there is some level. Uh, to which things can be on par objectively as far as they go, but um, but for a lot of analysts and observers today who are looking at the U.S. empire, uh, it's you know they've reached a level of understanding about it that where they've come to the conclusion where it's completely unsustainable, and um, and so. Uh, maybe there is a a, a level, um, a higher level, if you will, um, of objectivity that exists among uh, some people, uh, which says um, because of their valuing certain things above others, certain modes of being above others, truth above lies, uh, cooperation above uh, um, exploitation, uh, that you know, this is truer to what is creative, uh, truer to what is uh, beautiful, uh, more with what And so, um, just another consideration of of how we might look at objectivity as a kind of a, a higher, more creative ideal or value. Yeah. Yeah, man. I think that's a good that's a good Yeah. A beautiful wrap up to to the show, Maryland. <laughs> so yeah, we've uh, we've reached the end of our allotted time here today. So everyone thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks to Stephen for calling in. Thanks to our chatters. 
Um, we'll be back next week. And make sure to tune in tomorrow to Behind the Headlines at uh, 12 Eastern. Of course, the Health and Wellness Show, Friday at 10. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.